then for this Sunday and thinking about man what should I talk about what what should I say since we're not in a series or collection I really felt God's Holy Spirit impress on me to bring a message that I'm going to call OMG not because the message will be OMG I'm going to do my best I can't make any promises I just told you the story so if we get through this together it's a miracle okay but I want to talk to you about this very well-known well-texted well-typed, well-used, cultural cliche of, oh, my God. Here's my question. Here's the question I was wrestling with for the last few weeks. How is it that in the church, the F-bomb, which is the F-U-C-K word, in case you're wondering, is more controversial than the G-bomb? Thinking, G-bomb? What, what curse word begins with G? No, not a curse word. The word God, G-O-D. Like, I understand how outside the four walls of church, people don't care. So this is an irrelevant conversation. And if you're here at one of our venues and you're not a Jesus follower, uh, all I can say to you today, today is this. Maybe you're curious enough to know what we believe about these things. That might make you lean in. But essentially, if you're not a Jesus follower, you don't really care about God's name, the value of God's name, the worth of God's name, whether we use God's name. It's just something that you use a lot like the F-bomb. My question is, though, why is it that for us, in the church, those who would say we're Jesus followers, if I were to stand up here and say, F off, you'd all be like, ah! the pastor just cursed in church. But if I dropped my phone or dropped the TV and went, oh my God, no one would really care. There's a problem with that. And again, let's, let's look at it from a sociological aspect. Let's do a little social experiment. Let me give you another acronym. You've seen this one. It goes this, STFU. Anyone know what it stands for? Of course, it stands for shut the front door. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, it means something else. But it's funny how sociologically, when we don't want to use certain phraseologies or curses, we, we, we swap out the offensive words for alternative words that make it less offensive. For example, when we don't want to say, oh my God, we say, oh my gosh. Or we say, oh my goodness. Or from Ireland, oh my giddy aunt. Which I'm not sure, is that like an ant that's really giddy, like hyperactive, like an ant with ADHD disorder? Or is that like an auntie who's really happy and giddy? I don't really understand what this means, but I know that we use it, we swap out. And the reason why we swap it out is because regardless of who, what we believe, where we're from, whether you're a Christian or not, the reality is we all have this innate sense or our ability to discern the difference between what is a curse not a curse. So when it comes to cursing, and by the way, the word curse and the, and the topic theme or subject matter of cursing in the Bible is not what we mean when we use it today in our vernacular. Blessings and curses are, is a whole different message. But when we use cursing in our vernacular, what we mean is using bad or foul language. Now the Bible does speak to this. God's word does speak to us about cursing, bad and foul language. It says three things in particular. Number one, we shouldn't indulge 
in battle for life. Again, if you're not a Jesus follower, you can indulge all. You just go for it, right? You just go for it right now. Not out loud, but in your head, okay? You just go for it. But if you're a Jesus follower, if you say, I've committed my life to find and follow and serve Jesus, and my life is not my own, but for his glory, and I understand as an ordinary person, I've been called to extraordinary purpose in Christ, God's word says something to you. It says, don't indulge, don't enjoy, don't, don't make your home in bad or foul language. Number two, the same thing it says is, don't dismiss it. Like, if you say something, and we all have hit our, you know, thumb with a hammer or done something, and it just came out of us, which that's a whole other sermon for over, from the overflow of the heart that speaks and that whole thing. But like, but, like, we shouldn't be dismissed the fact that if something is not up to God's standard, we who are Jesus followers shouldn't dismiss something that God doesn't dismiss. And number three, we shouldn't celebrate. Like, culture may celebrate... Our friends, we may be in a chat group, a WhatsApp group, an Instagram DM group. We may be in a group where people are celebrating things, but we don't have to object, but we can choose to not participate, right? Scripture says some things about cursing. But the reality is when you look, when you study or think about cursing in general, cursing is subjective, right? Because did you ever like read what curse words were a hundred years ago? They were terrible. Like, our curse words are so much better. It feels like not only have we learned to fly and go to space and create iPhones and microwaves, but we've also figured out a way to upgrade our curse words because some of the curse words 100 years ago are just like ridiculous. Like, that, that was like a curse word? What? And even some of you right now in, in, in this location or in other locations, like, you're from somewhere else. And so words that were used in your region, your nation, your place, that you use here, don't have the same effect. For example, one of the countries I go to quite often is America. Did you know that in America, generally speaking, the word damn is a curse word? I mean, shock and horror. In certain churches, you can't even use the word hell, which blows my mind because it's actually in the Bible. You know, and there's others I don't mention, but there's loads of words that here just really don't mean anything. There's no real offense attached to them. But there, you travel to a different culture, and all of a sudden, wow, you just cursed. Like, what well, didn't mean to curse? Why? Because cursing is subjective sense that it's geographical, it's grammatical, and it's generational. There's things that just, because all it is is our, our current sociological moment attributes value to a word that all of us agree, understand, and we understand that word is good or bad, negative or positive. But as we change, as our culture changes, as the world changes, so does the power of those curse. STFU is a matter of, matter of context. Why? Because that's, that's a curse word now. It wasn't a curse word 100 years ago, and it may not be one in the future. But right now, it's a matter of context. And, and, the, and the scriptures do speak to cursing in a contextual sense, mostly in the New Testament. But OMG is a command. There's a difference. 100 years from now, STFU will be a joke. People look back and go, those guys really said that and thought that was offensive? That's ridiculous. They, they look back at magazines and videos and think, wow, that's the best that they could do? We got so many more better words 100 years from now. The subjective nature of curse word changes, but here's what I want you to see. 1,000 years from now, 5,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, OMG will not. Why? Because there's something about God's name and using God's name and the value of God's name that does not change no matter where we are geographically, how we speak grammatically, or what generation we were born into. There's something about the timeless worth of God's name that, again, even if you're not a Jesus follower, demands that we at least pay attention for a moment because there's something about it that's so interesting. So the question is, what does God's word say about O-M-G? And we're going to look at one verse. It's found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and verse 7. And again, all of today's Bible notes are in the Bible app by you version. So if you want to uh, go ahead and download the Bible app by you version, uh, click on more, click on events, and then you will find uh, in there for you all of his notes and extra bonus uh, study notes if your son likes to go a bit deeper. But if you know the scriptures, you know that Exodus 20 is the moment where Moses receives from the Lord what we now call the Ten Commandments. 
And some of us, maybe like me, you grew up in a religious background. I grew up a Roman Catholic. I didn't really have a practicing faith that was alive or relevant or real to me. I just grew up in a tradition that was important. And so I played along, as everyone played along, because that's what you do, do when, you, when you play along. And for me, the Ten Commandments always came across as this like overbearing list of just rules that we could never live up to, and therefore we're like a mockery. It's, like, it's almost like when a parent punishes a child far beyond the child's ability to take, all the child can do is laugh because this is ridiculous. It's like, for example, let's just say that you are having issues with your 14-year-old son, and you decide that you're going to ban them from their video game devices for 10 years. Like it's, it's, it's just it's such a high standard, all they can do is laugh or leave. Because there's no practical, realistic way that that's actually going to happen. Sometimes for me, it felt like, wow, these Ten Commandments were so lofty, and, and these religious people were so good at them. And, and almost like, because they were written in stone tablets, it's almost like they were weaponized by people who were supposed to be Christian to judge those who weren't Christian. And so, in, in many senses, culturally, the Ten Commandments get a very bad rap at being this overarching, overbearing list of rules that are weaponized by the church to hurt and harm those outside the church. But the truth is, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he wasn't just giving a list of rules, he was forming a nation. The Ten Commandments are a lot like the Bundarok Neheran, or in English, the constitution of Ireland. To be a nation, to be a people, there have to be some underlying rules values, if you will, belief systems that make it possible for a society to work and function and be governed. If there's no shared or agreed rules or principles or guidelines, then how can there be governance? How can there be law? How can there be justice? How can there be any kind of systemization of economy or anything else? There has to be an agreed foundation for a people group to exist. Well, when God was bringing his people out of Egypt, he wasn't just giving them a bunch of religious rules. He was, he was beginning the process of forming a nation. And the foundation document of that nation, the values that would drive and make this nation different, were what we now call the Ten Commandments. And in their time, they were as uh, controversial in so many ways as they are now. Because in a very polytheistic society where people worship many gods in many different ways, for the, for the very first command to be, you should, the Lord is one, you should worship him only. Even the first one was hugely controversial in the day. But God was trying to form a community that was built, predicated and built upon a belief system. And, and the belief system, as we now know, are listing those things. And we, we see this because at the end of the day, and this is just another free thought before I move on, like, how can you build a society where murder is not punished? How can you build a society where lying is not frowned upon? How can you build a society where no one values the sanctity and sacred nature of marriage and fights for its protection, looks down on people who abuse that. I mean, like, how do you build a society not using so many of the things? And again, if you take Ten Commandments, they're usually split four and six, four between us and God, six between us and each other. Like, without those two things working in harmony, our vertical relationship with God transforming our horizontal relationship with each other, then you can't really coexist as a people. And some of you have fled countries, come on, and are here because... There is no more value for life because the murders weren't being punished, because the liars and the corrupt weren't being brought to justice. You've left the place that you came from because, like it or leave, we believe it or not, people gave up on the value that these things matter. So they don't just have application to the Jewish people, they don't just have application for us as the Christian people, but they also have a broader application in the world because nearly all of Western society in some way, shape or form was built on the values that we find in this world. In fact, the very month we find ourselves in, interesting month, the fact that people have freedom of speech and can choose and can live out their liberties in the ways they fit, that was only made possible because a Judeo-Christian worldview propagated a belief that every individual, regardless of skin color, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, has intrinsic value in God's eyes. Now, we accept that as normal in the Western world, but for most of history, that was not the reality. It was when Western nations were founded upon Judeo-Christian principles 
that individuals, regardless of their socioeconomic, ethnic, uh, gender, class, were given. And I'm not saying that it all worked out perfectly and it was applied perfectly in every era. It clearly wasn't. What I'm saying is the greatest sociological revolution in all of human history happened when governments took premises from God's word and applied them to societies. That's the top for free. The one I want to focus on today, though, is verse 7, which is the third of the Ten Commandments, which says this. It says, you shall not, I love this, misuse, come on, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, if you grew up like me and you were you know, taught to, to memorize the Ten Commandments, you would remember as this, do not take the Lord's name in vain. The reason for that is because, and I love that the NIV is national, as I call it, the national Irish version, everybody. It's actually called the, the international uh, version. Uh, I love that they put in the word misuse. I'm going to bring in a little bit of journey and show you why I think it's a good word. When you think about the word misuse, you break it down. The word misuse gets its kind of uh, roots in the, in the word vain. The Hebrew word is the word shav. Say the word shav. Shav. Almost like I'm shaving my face, okay? I'm shaving my face. It's like shav, halfway there, okay? And when you, when you do like an etymological kind of word study on the word shav in the Hebrew language, in essence, what the word shav means is empty, but not empty in like the bin is empty or the cup is empty or the tank is empty or, you know, the church is empty. Like it's empty in the sense of like to empty something of something. See, it has this, this, this kind of connotation of when you have something that's full and you pour it out in a way that is not good. Like, let's just imagine that you very generously realize, you know, my gosh, poor Pastor Jamie's having a difficult morning. You know, he needs at least three coffees. And you walk up to me and say, listen, I just felt like I just should help you and I bought you a coffee. And what if I took that coffee, popped off the lid, and just poured it out in front of you? Shove it. There you go. <laughs> it's like, boom, there you go. And just, you're thinking, whoa, I mean, you'll be using a few uh, STFU words there, let me tell you. It's like, what is this guy on? It's like, it's, like, it's like, not only have I wasted the content, but because of the gesture, because of the value, because of the interpersonal relational connection, it wasn't just liquid in a cup. It wasn't just coffee. It wasn't just a gesture. It wasn't just kindness. It's also us being somehow connected as people. Because of all of those things working together, you might describe it as this, to do that would be sinful. It would violate our trust in that person. Shav means that we empty something of great value in a way that's irreverent. Now, what's interesting is when you look at how the Jewish people handled the Word of God, the Jewish nation, Jewish people historically in antiquity and even to this day, the Orthodox Jews, Jewish people held the name of God in the most sacred regard. In fact, they felt like the name of God was so sacred that uh, when God said to Moses in Exodus 6, God, Moses said, some of you know the story, who are you? You know, God appears in the burning bush. That's a story from the other day. And speaks out with his bush. And, and Moses is like, well, tell me who you are. And God says, I am who I am. That's who I am. Like there's lots of other names that describe God. Like you might have nicknames for friends. Like, oh, he's the rock. or he's a fridge. You know, over, Addy over here is a wardrobe. You know what I'm saying? He's a walk and talk in Romanian wardrobe. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, Addy, you know, he's a big man. And so... My point is, is like we might have descriptors of people, but his name isn't those things. His name is Adrian. In the same way, there's lots of descriptors about God in the Word, but his name, the name he gives himself, is I am who I am. Which is an amazing, again, theological conversation, because what does that mean? That's a whole different journey. But if you translate I am into the Hebrew, then God's name is Yahweh. Or roughly speaking, it's my best attempt. Yahweh. But the Jewish people held God's name in such regard that they wouldn't say the name of God unless it was in appropriate times of prayer or praise. And they wouldn't even write the name of God. When Jewish scribes or scholars would write his name, they would actually would just acronize it to YHWH because his name was so sacred that you couldn't even write it fully. It was, it's too much value, too much greatness, too grand and sacred a thing to capture on paper. It's kind of like when you're texting someone 
And God comes out in the lower case. Anyone else got a problem with that? I'm like, there isn't a case big enough for my capital G-O-D. There isn't. In fact, it should be bold. It should be highlighted. It deserves its own text message. It's that big. It's kind of like that, that there's a sense of like, because I value this so much, it cannot be like other words. I think we as the church, and sometimes have a lot to learn from our Jewish brothers and sisters in the reverence and the way they treat and approach the holiness and the wordiness of God in his name. You see, attach this idea of vanity, vain, uh, emptiness, is this idea of waste. That if I were to pour out that coffee in front of you, you'd think, man, what a waste. It was a waste of your time, wasn't it? It was a waste of your resource, wasn't it? It was a waste of a good gesture, wasn't it? It was a waste of trust because now after the altercation, you walk away believing worse than me than you did before, maybe. And so it's just, a, just a, it's just a capital W waste. And I think this is a good way of framing this conversation, that when we think about do not misuse, do not use God's name in vain, and the essence of what the Hebrew word is saying to us is we should not waste God's name. We shouldn't waste it. We shouldn't use it wastefully. We shouldn't use it in a way it's wasteful. We should be intentional and turned on and clued in to the value, the worth, and as we're going to see at the end, the power of the name of God. So, very practically then, let's shift gears and turn a corner. How do we do this? Four ways that we waste the worth of God's name. And again, if you're here, you're not a Jesus follower, this is just for your curiosity. I want you to know what we believe. And you don't have to believe, there's no pressure, but I at least want you to know this is what we're supposed to believe. And in general, there's four ways that we as Jesus followers can be wasteful of God's name. Number one, the first way we waste is in ignorance. In ignorance. Now, I'm talking about the technical term ignorance, meaning we lack knowledge, we lack information, and we lack understanding. Part of my role today is to rectify this, to bring some knowledge, try my best to give you information, and hopefully explain things in a way that helps you to understand. It's like for me, I have a very embarrassing story with this. When I first became a Christian, it's a true story, um, I did not realize that Christ was not Jesus' surname. Yes, I was that dumb. And it's, it's one of those, you're ever in a moment where someone like says something, like they say like, oh, you know, they say something like it's true, and you know everyone believes it's true, but you're thinking, but I didn't think that was true. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh yeah, just, people think Jesus Christ's surname. I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. What was his surname? It's like, of Nazareth. That's how most people did that in the past. You're of a place or son of someone. That's why if you look at the Irish names, oh this, oh that, all O means is son of. In Scottish, Mac, which means son of. It's how we trace people. Like you're John who? Are you John the son of John or John the son of Joseph? No, I'm John the son of John. And who's he the son of? He's the son of Joseph. And he's the he's son of John. It's like during lockdown, one of the things I did with my father is we went and tried to find our relatives in different cemeteries where we're from. And we, what, what we discovered in that trip was that our family uh, had a very small uh, selection of names. There was like, all the guys were like John, Jer, or Patrick. All the girls were Lily, uh, something else, something else. It was like every generation, the same three names. Like, oh my gosh, like someone should have given them a book or told them there's other names there you can use. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all the same names. In fact, my dad's name is John, and my uncle's name is Sure. And I'm also technically John, and my youngest son is called John. There you go. So it just continues on some weird way. The point is, that's how people got on. So I was just like totally surprised that Jesus Christ's his surname wasn't Christ. So in ignorance, I thought that's the way it was. And when I was told different, I was like, okay, that's helpful to know. Now, here's the thing about ignorance. Because what happens is sometimes we treat ignorance like arrogance. Because if someone is ignorant, what do we do? We give them the benefit of the doubt. Sure, they didn't know. They had no clue. Sure, how would they? But if someone comes across as arrogant, we use a different kind of approach. We're a lot more assertive, a lot more aggressive. Sometimes we can be a lot more critical. Here's the point. It is not our right nor our responsibility to hold those outside the church I really wish that the church, Christians, would grasp this. 
It's none of our business what those outside the faith do with their lives. If you're in one of our environments or here right now and you're not a Jesus follower, it's not my job to judge you. There will be a judgment. There will be a reckoning one day where all of us will stand before a Father in heaven. You go, well, I don't really believe that. Well, then what do you do with the Hitlers and Stalins and the people that abused and hurt and hated and, and murdered? Like, is there no justice ever for anyone? And if there is, then why does your verse of justice suit you? Why isn't there a true justice, a capital T true justice, that one day all humanity will pass through? That's God's job. Our job, we don't, we don't have, we parade sometimes as if we have the corner market on like perfectionism or we, we are God. We're, our job is not to judge people. Our job is to love people. Our job is to help people. Our job is to serve people. And again, this isn't just a thought or a point. This is what the Apostle Paul said to a church like ours in a Greek city called Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5.12. He said this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? So on the one hand, it's like, it's not my job to hold people accountable. If you're not a Jesus follower, you can do whatever the heck you want. It's not my job to hold you accountable. I'm not the parish priest. I'm not the, you know, celestial, biblical policeman. I'm not going to beat you with the Bible or Ten Commandments. That's between you and God. But what Paul does say is that we are to hold those inside the church accountable. Now, here's the thing about ignorance. We, we may not be held accountable to the things we don't know necessarily, but that doesn't mean that the things that we don't know can't harm us or aren't hurtful to other things. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this way, Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. And if this is a new thought for you, you're either one of these two things. Either you're sincerely ignorant, which now I've told you, you're not anymore. So now we only have one choice. This is Jesus follower. This is very careful. If you're a Jesus follower and you maintain your direction in regards to how we handle God's name, then you end up in this category. Conscientiously stupid. That's dangerous. Because that's a form of delusionment. That's a path that we don't want to go down. So there's mercy and grace for all of us, of course. But I want us to understand that this conversation isn't about us fighting society or fighting people. It's about us as followers of Jesus having and a conversation of accountability. Why is it that we're more offended when a Christian uses the F-bomb than when the passively, empty, wastefully use God's name? Here's the second way we use God's name wastefully. First one's ignorance. Second one is irreverence. What does the word irreverent mean? It means that we lack respect. We lack recognition. We lack regard for something that's worthy of respect, worthy of recognition and worthy of regard. True story, yesterday I was uh, invited with a, some guys from our church to go play in a golf tournament. I got a good friend who's a pastor of a great church in Athlone called Pastor Trevor Hill, great guy, amazing man of God. And every year he does a, a charity golf tournament because his son, Peter Hill, uh, at 17 years old, just after finishing his leaving cert, died and so in his memory, and to, and to help raise support for the various agencies that helped him every year, he was a charity event. And every year we go and show up and do what we can to help and support them. So yesterday, we played in the golf tournament. A few of us in the church didn't go very well, just truth be told. There you go. Pray for me. Uh, but afterwards, we're in the, in the bar having a drink. And I'm standing there, and I look at the wall behind the bar. And there, framed in this, in this case, is the tricolor, the Irish flag. Okay? The only problem was, it was backwards. It was orange, white, and green, which is technically every coast. So I asked the waitress, excuse me, I said, why is the flag backwards? She goes, what flag? What flag? Oh, oh, I've never noticed that. And it just walks off. I'm like, so then the manager comes out and I go, can I ask you a question? She goes, yeah, yeah what is it? I said, why is our national flag backwards? Like, that flag means something. That flag represents something. There are people who sacrifice a lot for that flag. There are people right now in the name of the defense of our island and you know, Garda Shikana who stand up and exist to protect what that flag means. And even if you're not from here, 
and you've come to live here, it's because of that flag there's a place for you in this country. Because of what that flag represents, the openness, the diversity, the equality, the, all these values that people died for to make a reality, because of that flag, you're all here. That flag means something. And it should be treated reverently. It shouldn't be worshipped. I'm not talking about Christian nationalism. All I'm saying is there's things in our lives that aren't always God, that deserve the place of reverence in our world. And when things happen that are contrary, it's like there's like an like, like, uh, irreverence. Whoa, whoa. Like, it's almost like, I'll tell you a true story. I have another flag. Last year, I was in the States with my father. We were doing a speaking thing together. And we were in an Irish pub, which wasn't Irish. They spelled it, gave me the fault wrong. It was hilarious. And they also had the Irish flag the wrong way around. And so the same thing. It's like, I feel like I'm the flag policeman. It's like, I say to the waiter, it's like, hey, our national flag is like upside down. And she was so rude and so obnoxious, my dad went over and pulled the flag off the wall for the everybody. All of a sudden, the bounces are rolling in. I'm thinking, this is how I die. You know what I'm saying? Wave that flag one last time for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And bounce comes in, and he's like 10 foot two, like Addy, he's a wardrobe guy, and, and everything. He's like, what's going on? And my dad said, listen, this is our national flag. And it's been, it's been misused. It's upside down. And immediately the guy went, I understand. Let's fix it. It's like, it's, it's not always church things, but there's things in our lives that are worthy of reference. And when we don't respect and recognize and regard these things, there's something wrong. I understand, reverence isn't always the object. Oftentimes, reverence is something that resides within us. Like, maybe this way, this way to you. How we feel with the flag doesn't change the value of the flag. In the same way, how we feel about God doesn't change the value or nature of God. Like, we're not going to hurt God's feelings if we don't care about him. Like God isn't going to be less powerful or less God, less omnipresent, less omnipotent, less uh, uh, omniscient if we don't believe in him. No matter what, regardless of what we think or feel, God is still God. But our reverence, our seeing and holding in value the nature and worth of who he is, that's something that resides in us. It was the renowned theologian R.C. Sproul this, how we treat God's name reflects how we feel about him. And again, we know this because we've all been around people, let's say, for example, in a marriage scenario, where we're around one of the spouse and we're hearing them talk about their spouse in a way that is so degrading and so demeaning and so disrespectful. And we know it's wrong. And we know we can't trust that person because it won't be long before we're on the receiving end. Why? Because the disrespect, the degrading, the meaning, the lack of reverence for that person, for their spouse is inside them. How we treat someone's name reveals how we feel about them. If the president of Ireland were to walk in here, I wouldn't be like, yo, Mickey, what's the crack? Mickey D? Right? It'd be like, we'd all stand There'd be like a, a, a short segment of Aaron Afin. We all recognize the president of the Republic of Ireland. Like when someone, when a person or an office has value, there's a special recognition that goes with that. See, we're called as Jesus followers to steward what God has given us. That means take care of, guard, protect, pay attention to. And stay away from things that will try to lull us or lead us astray into a misuse, a wastefulness of the things that matter to God. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6.20. He said, Timothy, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We don't always have to reject our job isn't to be, like I said, the biblical police in the world. But we can, we can choose to avoid because God's name is worthy of a reverence. Third way, we're wasteful. So ignorance, reverence. Third thing is incongruence. There's a great word. Incongruence. The word means what it sounds like. Congru to be together, stuck, sticky, to be continuous, to, to have um, a sense of continuity. When we're incongruent, we're not congruent. What it means is we lack consistency, we lack continuity, and we lack a basic sense of character. What this means is that 
Using God's name isn't just about using it entity in phrases like OMG or Jeebus Crippus, all the other things that we use, or the famous one here in Dublin, Jesus. Okay, it applies to that, we're going to see next. But actually, one of the deeper applications of this commandment is that what we say and who we are matters. It's not just enough to say things, it's also who we are. And, and this is really interesting because maybe one of your pushbacks as someone who's not a Jesus follower is like, man, the church and Christians historically have done so many things that are anti-church, anti-Bible, anti-person of Jesus. It's like, it's like one of the reasons why people oftentimes push back against church and faith in the Bible, maybe you're right here now in the same reason, is there's an incongruence between God, his word, and his people. We call that hypocrisy. There's a disconnect. It's like, hang on, you're supposed to represent this guy, this, this incredible leader, founder, Messiah, who's full of love and compassion, who gave his life, who, who, who did all these wonderful things, and you guys are such a bunch of moaning, judgmental, self-righteous, religious hypocrites. And it's like, I just cannot buy into or embrace this faith if that's if the, if, the, if, the, if the lack of congruence is so real that God doesn't do anything about it. And here's the problem. And here's why I think this commandment, this is probably something you've never heard before, especially if you're a Christian. This commandment doesn't just cover, you know, uh, passively using God's name in conversation. At the heart of it is when people do things in God's name, when they say, let's go to, let's go to Jerusalem and kill a bunch of Muslims and take back the city in God's name. Let's uh, subject a different uh, group of people because of their skin color and subject, and subject them to slavery in God's name. Let's take control of a nation and keep people ignorant and away from education so we can control and manipulate them in God's name. Whenever people do things in God's name that is not God's will, they're in violation of this command. And it says, those who do this will not be found guiltless on the day of judgment. It isn't just passively saying God's name. It's when we act or speak or do things and we claim it's for God's name. We claim it's God's will. We claim it's God's glory. But it's the exact opposite. One day we will give an account for the name that we claimed to do those things. And there will be a reckoning. There will be justice. And we'll all stand before God in that sense. This is why for us, we try to avoid the term Christian. What's a Christian? Who's a Christian? People tell me, I was born Christian. You can't be born Christian. You're born human. You can be born into a family of people who adhere to and follow the faith, but you can't be born into a Christian home. There's no such thing as a Christian home. There's people who follow Jesus individually or collectively, and there may be a blessing on that home. But to simply give someone a noun and say, oh, I am a Christian, is part of the reason why there's so much incongruence in church history. Because there's a lot of people who were born or raised or called Christian who were as far away from Christ as Timbuktu is from Ladgerstown. It's like they're nothing like Christ. This is why we like the term Christ follower. Why do I like the term Christ follower? Because Christ follower is not based solely on belief. Belief is a huge power. To believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, trust that he is, he is the Savior of the world, trust that he is. Like, belief matters. But it's not just belief. It's belief in action. It's actively following Jesus that makes someone, quote-unquote, Christian. We can't be hide behind a baptism or a birth cert or our mother's prayers. We are what we are. And if we claim to do things or be something in God's name when we're not, we're actually in violation of this commandment. It's why the prophet Isaiah said in his book, chapter 29, verse 13, these people come near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So significant is this verse that Jesus actually quoted this exact verse in Matthew's gospel. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. What does this tell you about God's desire? He wants not just the words of our lips. 
but he wants our hearts. And oftentimes when he has our hearts, we don't have to act or pretend or play church because we can be normal and we can be ordinary and we can even be imperfect and imperfect. We can even be broken because it's not our, it's not our perfection that glorifies God. It's his perfection in our brokenness that glorifies God. And whenever the church sets itself up as the moral standard of the world, whenever we take the place of God in our society, people will not only not want to be around us, they'll find us intolerable. Because we find people, don't we, who are self-righteous uh, and pre-contentious, we find them intolerable because they're so arrogant. There's a challenge here for us in this. And the challenge is when our profession of faith does not line up to our practice, we may be called Christian on paper, but in reality, we're practical atheists. We're practical atheists. If we can switch off our faith when it's convenient to us, when we can change, we can say, I don't belong anymore, like that standard, that thing. When we can, we can, we can step out of the kingdom of God, what we're actually doing in that moment, in practicality, is we're living as if God didn't exist. It could be for a moment, could be for a longer period of time. But when we choose to throw off the heart and desire and will of God for our lives, we who are Christ's followers are in danger of living a practical atheist. What's amazing to me after pastoring for, I don't know, 18 years, is how many times I meet people who, are, who describe themselves as atheists, but oftentimes look more like Christian. And those who call themselves Christian, but are as atheists as they come. It's like, this is so confusing. It's like, what determines whether something, someone is not, well, yes, belief, faith, salvation by faith alone, but faith must be lived out in some sort of practice. And isn't that your, not, not perfection, not faith in perfection, that's religion. Faith in, what's practice? I'm crawling. I'm crawling. I'm so broken. I'm so dead. I'm crawling. But you're crawling. There's, a, there's an outworking. There's a reality. There's a practicality to the thing that you say you believe in. It was Dr. Maxie Dunham who said this theologian. We break this commandment when we say we believe in God and that we accept the ideals of his kingdom, but we don't take him seriously. This is a form of atheism. We are atheists in practice. Though we may be Christians in profession, we're atheists when we live much of our lives as though God did not matter. This is huge. And again, this is why, maybe you're here, this is one of the reasons why you just cannot embrace the Christian faith because of the incongruence of God's word, the personhood of God, and the people calling his church. And we as the church, we who are Jesus, we don't understand that this is, this is so important that our faith isn't something we attach on to. It isn't an ornament that we wear. It isn't a place that we come from. It isn't a heritage we receive from our praying granny. Our Christianity is only ours if in belief we walk it out practically every day. Not perfectly, practically. And there's a huge challenge for us in that. But the fourth and final one, here's what I want to say as we close in a second. The one, the one that really led me to want to bring you this word Ignorance, irreverence, incongruence, number four, indifference. This is the one that really just, because I just would be around people, I just hear people just Christians say like, oh my God, Jesus. Oh my God, Jesus. They're just talking like, oh my God, Jesus. I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, are you a Christian? Are you a Jesus follower? Do you know the value, the worth, the majesty, the magnitude, the dignity of that name? That you're passively thrown out there like a comma, like an abbreviation, like a semicolon in a sentence? If you're a Christian, do you know that by that name you have been saved? By that name you've been redeemed? By that name you've been, you've been set free? By that name you're whole? By that name everything that is and has been and ever will be is held together in perfect unity? Do you know the weight of that name? We, as Jesus followers, should never be indifferent to the value, worth, majesty, preciousness of God's name. What does the word indifference mean? It means we lack concern. We lack care. And very importantly, we lack caution. 
I, I phrase it this way. It's like a casual, passive indifference. Like, well, you know, yeah, well, you know, Jamie, like, I'm just using God. It's not a big deal. Okay, you shouldn't do that. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, you know, when it suits me, I'm a Christian, like, you know. Like, yes, I'm a Jesus follower, I'm tired, and I go to church, and I believe God, but right now I'm going to be practical atheist. Because I like saying, oh, my God. And I like when all my friends are going, Jesus, Jesus, oh, Jesus. Love it. Love what I do. I don't want to be that person in the circle of friends that stands out. I don't want to, I'm afraid of what they may think of me, so I'm more concerned what they think of me than what God thinks of me. So I'll switch off what I think about him to please those in front of me. God's name is holy. It is separate. It is worthy. It is powerful. It is precious. It is everything that we have. It is everything that we need. It is in and by that name that we are and be and will live in eternity. Now, I'm not wanting to beat people up here. But what I am trying to do is clarify, bring knowledge, bring information, bring understanding. That I don't want to be a pastor of a church that's filled with people who are indifferent to the value and worth of God's name. I don't want to be a person, and you can hold me accountable to this, I don't want to be a person that like in front of you is all like, oh, the name of Jesus. But then like outside in the hall, we're like, oh my God, Jesus, oh my God. Is it so interesting that, like, no matter where you go in the world, it's always Jesus and it's always God. Why is it never Buddha or Allah or Muhammad or any other small G God? Like, why, why in every culture is the passive emptying and wasting and pouring out of value only the name of our God? Surely, if you're not a Jesus, that should spark some interest. In a sense, because like, yeah, why is that? Why is it only the name of the Christian God that society throws out so wastefully? Maybe it's because deep down there's a belief, understanding, a, a shadow of the history that reminds us there's power in that name. And our culture doesn't like that name because of what it represents, because of what it means. And we don't want to use these other names because there's no power in those names but there's power in the name of Jesus. Let me give it a very obscure verse this point, then we'll pray in a second. Jesus said this in Matthew's gospel. We played the pipe for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Very obscure verse. It's like, what do you want? Like we, we, we jumped on the fiddle, and we did a reel and a jig, and we're dancing around, but you didn't want to dance. So we got there, and we did like a, an old Irish song, a Shano singer singing a song, and it's like, and you didn't mourn. Like, what, 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 why are you so disconnected? Why are you indifferent? Why have you allowed yourself to switch off or to let go or to pour out wastefully the value of what you have? Because to bring this thing full circle, think about this. When we have something of such incredible, intrinsic, inspiring value, when we pour it out wastefully, we say, when we, when we, when we misuse it, we say, that's a waste. If I, if I gave something to someone that was of great value, great worth, and they misused it, we would say, that's a waste. That was a waste. In the same way, God has given us his name. Let's not be a people that misuse it. Let's not treat his name wastefully. Why? Because there is power in the name of Jesus. It is the only name. And I suppose my application is twofold. And the bands can come in all, all three locations. Three, it's twofold application. Number one, if you're a Jesus follower, I want you in this next moment as we go into the response song to really come before God and just ask a simple question, Holy Spirit, have I used your name wastefully? Have I in ignorance, indifference, incongruence, or irreverence 
emptied your name of its value? And if so, there's a great old-fashioned Bible word. It's called repent. It just means turn around. Let's just make a decision right now. We're not going to do that anymore. We don't need counseling. We don't need a 10-week Bible plan. We need someone to come to our house and pray for us. We can just decide right now, as grown-up human beings, we are not going to do that anymore. Not because we're not, not because of our religious rule sense, but because we understand again the value of what we have. Second application is if you're here and you're not a Jesus follower, consider this. After we're long dead and buried there will still be people gathered recognizing, worshiping, believing, trusting in the name of Jesus. There's been abuses, there's been, there's been misuses, wasteful, terrible, sinful misuse of God's name all through history. I think this commandment actually covers that. We've learned something new today. But what is it about the collective story of humanity that we keep coming back to, no matter how unpopular, or difficult or counterculture is to this truth that there is power in the name of Jesus. And if you would open your heart today to the power of that name, what could it do in your life? We often sing a song in church, not lately, but we have in the past. There's power to break every chain. There's power in Jesus' name to break the chains of addiction. There's power in Jesus' name to break the bondage of sin slavery. There's power in the name of Jesus to heal every broken heart, to restore every lost dream. There's power in the name of Jesus to put back every piece, even the pieces of you that are lost, that in the shattering of your life, they were lost. Jesus knows where those pieces are and has the power to put them back together again. Growing up in Ireland, I don't know about you, there was a song we used to sing. It's a very profound philosophical song. It goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat in a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put poor old Humpty Dumpty back together again. But Jesus can. But Jesus can. But Jesus can. Because nothing is impossible for him. It's why Paul says in the last text, in Philippians 2, 9, he said this, said, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the part you often hear re reference with this, verse 12. Therefore, my friends, my dear friends, my dear friends, Makara, Makarja, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more my absence, continue to work out your salvation, fear and trembling. Fear here, that word, reverence. Reverence. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good, pleasing, perfect, extraordinary purpose. You, know, you may not be able to fix a lot of things. My car is broken down. I got seven days to find a house before I'm kicked out. Not really, but seven days to get a house. There's a lot of things I don't have in control right now. But I can make this choice. Yahweh, worthy is your name. You are holy. And in that name, I have everything I need. And I wonder if you would join me, Lighthouse Church, and make a decision today to not waste it acknowledging, recognizing this revelation that there's power in God's name. What comes next?